Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for the Daily Journal. And our guest today is Erwin Chemerinsky, who's dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law, where he is also the Jesse H. Choper Professor of Constitutional Law. It is impossible to overstate the importance of Erwin Chemerinsky to legal education or indeed to the legal profession. He has been named the most influential person in legal education. His case books are used throughout the United States in, in constitutional law. He writes regularly as a distinguished public intellectual and has authored books. He also, before he was dean at UC Berkeley, was the founder of the law school at the University of California at Irvine, a major ABA school which in a matter of years he started, recruited, and brought to a point where it was ranked among the top 25 law schools in the United States. He taught at many other places, including for a period of 21 years at the University of Southern California Law School. We're honored to have him today with us. Erwin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for that incredibly sweet introduction. It's truly my pleasure to talk with you. Well, we'll be talking today, we're going to talk about the case that's known as the Obamacare case that was argued November 10th in the U.S. Supreme Court. The headline, we can give away the headline, which you probably have seen. The headline is that because of questions from Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, it is widely thought that Obamacare, the statute, will survive and will not be held unconstitutional. That was the end result, the headline of what people got from the oral argument. But what we're going to talk about are the doctrines that have gone into the incredible saga of the Obamacare litigation, the doctrines that have been forced to change, that have gone by the wayside, and their other influence. Because this is really a case study in constitutional litigation in the modern age. Obamacare, we can briefly say, was enacted in 2009 after uh, Barack Obama was, was elected president. And in broad outlines, we can say its key was to mandate that people either buy health insurance that was set up by the exchanges or pay a penalty for not doing so. It included other provisions, community rating and a, a prohibition on, on ch uh, making different rates on the basis of pre-existing conditions. Uh, and it also contained expansions of Medicaid. And it was then challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court. That's the statement of the statute. And it first was argued in a decision that came out in 2012, National Federation versus Sibelius. Erwin, tell us briefly about that case. We have to start there to understand what happened in this latest case, which is known by the name of California versus Texas. The Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision upheld the individual mandate as constitutional. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court, joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sonner, and Kagan. Chief Justice Roberts said that the individual mandate was effectively a tax. It was collected by the IRS. It was calculated as a percentage of income. The revenue went to the general treasury. He said, therefore, it fits within the scope of Congress authority to tax and spend for the general welfare. It is important to note that five justices, Roberts, Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas Alito, would have said that the individual mandate doesn't fit within the scope of Congress's Commerce Clause authority. These justices said Congress, under the Commerce power, can regulate economic activity. 
people not purchasing insurance is inactivity, and Congress can't regulate that. I especially want to ask you about the Commerce Clause ruling, because everyone thought that was going to be the central issue in the case. And I remember when Chief Justice Roberts started to read the decision, and it was clear as he was reading it that the court was going to find that the, uh, there was a, uh, the Commerce Clause was not a basis for the legislation, that everyone thought before he got to the tax penalty that it would be uh, essentially a statute would, would be knocked out. The Commerce Clause uh, opinion was was a very difficult opinion in terms of the historic scope of the Commerce Clause, wasn't it? I agree. I mean, I think everybody expected this would be a decision about the commerce power. And I have to admit, from the time Obamacare was adopted, I thought this was an easy question under the Commerce Clause. All of us either purchase health care or take advantage of free health care that others are subsidizing. There's no one in our society who goes without medical care. Those who don't have health insurance put an enormous drain on interstate commerce and the insurance industry. And so I thought the court would easily say that this is all within the commerce power because Congress is regulating activity that has a substantial effect on interstate commerce. Now, has that, that was written on behalf of five justices. Has that analysis and that opinion had any subsequent impact on Commerce Clause cases since then? None in the Supreme Court. There's been some lower court litigation about laws that seem to regulate inactivity. The Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act makes it a federal crime for someone to cross state lines if they haven't registered, as required by state law, as a sex offender. And the argument is that Congress is regulating inactivity, not having registered as a sex offender. The lower courts have not been receptive to that argument and upheld the statute. And the Supreme Court, as I say, has not returned to the analysis from Sebelius, and it's now eight years later. So turning from the Commerce Clause, the tax finding was, was very strange because the court first considered this as whether it was purely a tax in the context of whether the anti-injunction law applied, because the, there, the anti-injunction law prohibits enjoining the collection of a tax. So it framed that issue, and, and it found it was not a tax for purposes of the Anti-Injunction Act, didn't it? It did not. To start with, President Obama never used that three-letter word, nor did Congress want to use the three-letter word. There were actually a couple of dozen references in the legislative history that called it a tax. There is a statute, the Anti-Injunction Act, that says that federal courts cannot enjoin the collection of federal taxes. And indeed, some lower courts ruled that they couldn't hear the request to enjoin the Anti-Injunction, the Affordable Care Act, because of the Anti-Injunction Act. And yet, what Chief Justice Roberts said was that the individual mandate is not a tax for purposes of the Anti-Injunction Act, but it is a tax with regard to the scope of Congress's power under Article I of the Constitution. And if that sounds oxymoronic, it reads that way, too. It does read that way. I mean, I remember, I think you and I uh, did a presentation for the L.A. County Bar on upcoming arguments before the case was decided. And the one thing I think we both agreed on is that it would not be sustained as a tax because of the implications of the Anti-Injunction Act. And then after saying 
that it's not a tax for an injunction act, the exact language, the critical language of the holding, and this is why what we're now talking about in terms of the California versus Texas case is so important. Here's how Chief Justice Roberts justified utilizing the penalty for the individual mandate, even though the court had held in that opinion previously it was not a tax. Chief Justice Roberts wrote, the Affordable Care Act's requirement that certain individuals pay a financial penalty is is a a revenue-raising measure, and therefore it has enough aspects of a tax to implicate the Article I taxing power. And so that struck people as strange, but it was a reach out, and it's that part of the court's opinion, is it not, that in her confirma- in her article, it was the subject of her confirmation hearing, that now Justice Barrett disagreed with in an article that she wrote on the case. That's exactly right. I felt at the time that Chief Justice Roberts in the majority, I actually think the dissent, felt it necessary to decide the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. If the Anti-Injunction Act applied, what the Supreme Court had to say is, we've got to wait till somebody doesn't pay the tax, or pays the tax, really, and then goes and challenges it. Because under the Anti-Injunction Act, the way in which you can challenge a tax is you pay it, and then you go to the tax court and argue that it's unconstitutional. And that would have been the only way that it could happen. But given the importance of health insurance to the economy... The justices felt it necessary to decide, is the Affordable Care Act constitutional? So that led to the contortion of the court saying, well, it's not a tax for the Anti-Injunction Act, so we have jurisdiction and can meet the merits, and then saying, but it is a tax and fits within the scope of Congress's power to tax and spend. And the other thing that came up in that argument, which played a role in the recent argument in the Supreme Court in California versus Texas, was the issue was argued in, the, in terms of the positions of, the United, of, of those supporting the act to how critical uh, the individual mandate, the requirement that the penalty be paid, was to the entire act. And the argument was made the act will fall if this falls. It was said to be the central element, and that was the argument that was made at that time by those supporting Obamacare, which sets the stage for what then happened. In 2016, the Republicans get control of Congress, and in 2017, they pass a statute related to the penalty. And what does that statute do? The statute adopted in December 2017 eliminates the penalty for those who don't purchase insurance is required by the individual mandate. And it's that change in the law that led Texas and other states and the Trump administration to argue that the entire Affordable Care Act becomes unconstitutional. So Congress then, the Congress in 2017, uh, sets the penalty at zero. And immediately, Texas, starting with 20, and then some states dropped out and some added, immediately goes to court uh, in the Northern District of Texas before Judge Reed O'Connor and argues that since the Supreme Court had held in Sebelius that the statute was only constitutional because of the of the penalty provision, that without the penalty provision, uh, it was now unconstitutional to require uh, the mandate. Uh, And then Judge O'Connor held in that case what? Judge O'Connor agreed with Texas and the Trump administration that without the penalty, the individual mandate can't be justified as a tax. 
and that therefore the entire Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. This goes to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit says two to one that the individual mandate is unconstitutional because it doesn't fit into the taxing power, but sends it back to the district court to decide, is this provision severable from the rest of the statute? But California and the states defending the law go to the Supreme Court and say, take it now before it goes back to the district court. And the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. And as you say, arguments run Tuesday, November 10th. And the, California then intervenes in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, the Fifth Circuit two to one ruling, which upheld the that the mandate was unconstitutional, but remanded back on the severability issue, uh, was a two to one uh, uh, two to one opinion. Uh, both judges who in 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 the majority, uh, Judge Walker and Judge Engelhardt, appointed by George W. Bush, and and the dissenting judge appoint having been appointed by uh, by Jimmy Carter, uh, Judge King, and I guess the normal process after that two to one ruling and the remand would have been to ask for an on-bank ruling uh, to have the remand go forward. But California and uh, 19 or so other states intervened and asked the court to grant cert before the remand and without having asked for an on-bank ruling. And the court reached out and took it. Any thoughts on that? I mean, that was that was not the normal course of what a cert petition would ordinarily be. It was really premature in terms of what other options were, wasn't it? I think California and other states did so for a couple of reasons. One is they knew who the district court judge was. And Judge Reed O'Connor is extremely conservative, very hostile to the Affordable Care Act. He's already once said that the entire act is unconstitutional because of this. They didn't think there was much chance of winning on remand. The other is, again, the importance of the statute. 21 million people are receiving health care right now because of the Affordable Care Act. And they thought it crucial to get this resolved. So they decided to go to the court, and the court took it. And the court then did something very interesting in, in, in the argument. California was the petitioner uh, uh, seeking cert review, and that's why the case bears the title California versus Texas. It's a consolidated case with the original case brought by Texas. But the court establishes a, a unusual argument for this. It gives 40 minutes to each side, and in addition uh, to permitting, it allows other people to argue because there are other uh, people, other entities that have come in here, the Department of Justice is claiming unconstitutionality. The House Democrats want to defend it. But I first want to ask you about the Department of Justice's position. Uh, I know it's ambiguous because of the passage of, of the repeal of the uh, uh, of, of the uh, of the payment of the penalty payment. But isn't it unusual for the Department of Justice to urge that a statute enacted by Congress is unconstitutional? It's unusual, but not unheard of. Usually, the Justice Department defends federal laws. But there have been a handful of instances over the years where the Justice Department has argued that federal laws are unconstitutional. As an example, a very famous case from the early 1980s, the Justice Department argued that the so-called legislative veto that let Congress overturn agency action by resolution violated the Constitution. And Congress had to its own lawyers to defend the statute. So it's not that it never happens. And we've seen it in California. When Prop 8 got passed that would have re repealed 
the, it would have amended the California Constitution to say that there's no protection, that marriage between a man and a woman. Neither the governor nor attorney general of California would defend Prop 8. Others had to come in and do so, the supporters of the initiative. So we see it at the state level as well. Yeah, there's some, there's been some discussion about attorneys general in the state stepping out to whether, you know, that leaves the, uh, the state essentially unrepresented officially and whether another option is to recuse themselves individually or even recuse the department and appoint someone to defend the state because it leaves the state essentially unrepresented in, 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 in the litigation except by people who volunteer and come in to intervene. So we have the Department of Justice uh, arguing along with Texas and the other states that it's unconstitutional. And then the House Democrats also file briefs and ask to be part of the argument as well. And how does that, what, what does that result in? Again, it's unusual, but it's not unheard of to see that happen. Again, we saw something like it with regard to the Defense of Marriage Act in 2013. I think the Supreme Court has become more permissive about allowing more parties to argue in a greater amount of time. When William Rehnquist was the Chief Justice, he was very restrictive. It was one lawyer per side and the Solicitor General's office if it wanted to participate. And rarely did the court extend the time of the argument. John Roberts, I think, is more permissive in that regard. So we wound up in the argument of having two people uh, essentially in support of, of California to uphold the statute, who argued first uh, as the petitioners, Michael Mongan, the Solicitor General of California, who most people think gave a superb argument. And the House Democrats were represented in the Supreme Court by Donald Varelli, who had argued on behalf of the United States in the Sebelius case when it, when it was upheld. And on the other side, for Texas, Kyle Hawkins, the Solicitor General of Texas, argued as well as the Solicitor General Office of the United States. And another thing that's interesting here is, is states having appointed as a regular matter now Solicitors General uh, to, to specialize and handle cases on appeal in the Supreme Court. I know for many years, the Attorney's General Department and various states they just gave various assignments, but now the appointment of state solicitors general uh, have, has, has become a regular recurrence in most states, and it's a very interesting development. I, I, is that because states have gotten more involved in, in the federal litigation? Is that why they're doing this? I don't think so. I think it's much more because of the development of a Supreme Court bar, and you see that in firms, and I think that the states have copied that and said, well, we're going to have our equivalent of a Supreme Court bar, a solicitor general. It, a much higher percentage of cases than it used to be are argued by a relatively small group of lawyers. And Don Varelli, of course, is among them. And I think the solicitor generals of the state are part of that trend. That's a whole separate subject about what that means in terms of the functioning of the court. So let's turn and to the argument in California versus Texas. But before we turn to that argument and talk about what occurred in the Supreme Court, let's take a break. You know, listening to this, those of you who are, who are listening can obtain MCLA credit for the hour that you are listening to this uh, podcast. We'll now take a break, break so that you can hear in the break uh, how through the Daily Journal to obtain that MCLA credit.
The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID. We're back from the break, and now let's turn to the argument in, in, in the Supreme Court. The first, uh, the the Supreme Court granted cert on specific issues, and the first was a series of standing issues. And the standing issues, really two standing issues in terms of, of, of litigation. One was the standing of the states, California and other states. And the other was an argument that took up a large amount of time, an issue that took up a large amount of time in the argument, because two individual plaintiffs had also filed in the district court in Texas, uh, on the uh, consistent with the state's position, claiming uh, that the entire act was unconstitutional, and there was a large amount of argument about whether those individual plaintiffs had standing to challenge uh, Obamacare. What what were the standing issues uh, involving the individual plaintiffs? In order for someone to sue in federal court, standing is required. Key component to standing is the plaintiff has to have a personally suffered injury. And the question here is, how is anybody injured by Congress repealing the penalty for not paying the tax? And a lot of the questions that the oral argument, as you say, were about that. If there is a mandate but no consequences, who's hurt by it? I think it was Justice Thomas who said, if there's a requirement that you wear a mask, but there's no consequence not doing so, are you hurt by it? Justice Breyer asked similar kinds of questions, and Breyer was clearly dubious that there's any injury if there's no consequences to violating the law. Yeah, and Justice Breyer and Justice Kavanaugh had an interesting colloquy with, with some tension in it on what the language were, what other statutes in the U.S. Code, whether they said shall or, or should. But this is a subject that you have a great interest in. Um, and you've written a whole book on standing, barring the courthouse door, how we're not, in, uh, how we've been, there, there have been bars to raising constitutional issues uh, in terms of private causes of action and standing. Did you find echoes in this argument that, that interested you because of, of your writing of the book and, and your other concerns about standing of, of litigants in federal courts? I did, of course. What's interesting is for the last several decades, Conservative justices have used standing to restrict the ability of civil rights or progressive plaintiffs to come to court. Famous example is there was a challenge to Los Angeles police using the chokehold, and the Supreme Court, in a case called City of Los Angeles First Lions, said that even though the plaintiff had personally been choked, he couldn't sue for an injunction. He didn't have standing because he couldn't show he'd be choked again in the future. There's some important environmental cases where the Supreme Court says, plaintiffs, you can't sue because you don't have standing. 
There are many cases where there have been challenges to government aid to religious institutions. And the conservative justice said, no standing. Here what's interesting is it would be the liberal justices saying that the challengers to this statute don't have standing. And they might very well have some allies among the conservative justices. Um, as I say, I think even Justice Thomas seemed concerned here about standing. And so do you have a prediction in terms of the argument, in terms of the standing issue for the individual plaintiffs, what the court uh, is likely to rule? I am always so reluctant to make predictions based on the tea leaves of oral argument. I have gotten it wrong so many times. Um, I think that there are some justices who are going to say that there's not standing. Where there's a majority to do that, I'm not sure. But it certainly came up with some of the justices like Thomas and Breyer. Yeah, no, I, I, I will go out on a limb. My feeling is I don't know how the vote will be, but I, I think for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, and because there's an alternative for state standing that we'll talk about, that the court is not unlikely, I'll, I'll just put it that cautiously, not unlikely to rule that the individual plaintiffs may, may have no standing here. But then, of course, we come to the issue of the state standing. I mean, it's Texas and the combination of 19, ultimately 19 or so states that brought this action. What was the standing issue involving the states? What they say is that the Affordable Care Act imposes administrative burdens on them, and those administrative burdens involve costs. And it's that simply it, the fact that they have to do certain things, keep track of, uh, of items, uh, and, and keep basically a bookkeeping function that, that is the basis of the state? That's it. That's their claim of injury. And in terms of your analysis of standing, uh, do you think that's a powerful basis for standing here? I don't think it's a powerful basis. I'm somebody who generally believes that standing should be a more minimal burden so as to let federal courts decide constitutional questions. But I think what will be interesting is for the conservative justices who have been very restrictive about standing over the years, will they say this is enough? Yeah, that's what was so interesting to me in the argument and what I think is so interesting to talk about in terms of, I mean, your book on barring the courthouse door is a stunning analysis of the extent to which conservative justices have ruled against any standing against private causes of action. I mean, the example you gave about the chokehold, it's been a consistent pattern uh, to essentially, and you put it in terms of restricting access. And so now we have something which on its face whether it's simply in individual cases, the mandate without a penalty that they should buy or shall buy, and the states are simply claiming a bookkeeping costs, uh, based on the, the doctrine that co the justices have used to rule on standing, uh, this was a very interesting discussion because the basis in this case seems to be far less than other cases in which the conservative justices especially uh, have denied standing. It certainly would provide the court, if it wants to, an easy way to dismiss this case. It could rely on so many precedents that have been restrictive of standing and not ever get into the merits of the dispute. And yet, I can also imagine the justices saying, there is a dollar and cents cost to the state. A dollar and cents injury, even if it's small, is enough for standing, and then go on to the other issues. Yeah, for the same reason that the court, you know, went beyond the Commerce Clause and it reached out to the discuss the penalty in the original case. I, I, there may be an overwhelming feeling here that it's important to put this issue to rest and that simply saying there's no standing would simply invite other people 
attempting to invite standing and bring it back and leave a period of uncertainty. So however it plays out doctrinally, uh, the court uh, probably will get to the merits. And the first issue on the merits is the issue whether now the penalty is gone. Uh, It was not repealed as such, but it was set at zero. And and Chief Justice Roberts talked about it being a a revenue-raising measure. There's no revenue being raised now. So how do the arguments play out now? The claim is that the mandate, because the mandate is still there, the claim is that the mandate is now unconstitutional because the only reason it was held to be constitutional was the penalty as a revenue-raising measure, and there is now no revenue being raised. So how, how do the arguments play out there? I felt it put especially the individual plaintiffs in a dilemma. Either this isn't a tax and has no consequence at all, in which case there's no injury, or it's a tax, albeit one where you don't have to pay anything, and it still fits within the scope of the taxing power. And I think that the attorneys who are defending the Affordable Care Act might have done a better job of pointing out the dilemma that the plaintiffs were in, in light of their arguments. My estimate was, and again, I won't ask you to go out on a limb, uh, the, the, the one uncertain, uh, I think it's uncertain here whether the court will find that the statute is now unconstitutional as, as to the mandate. And again, one reason they may rule on it is because I think they do want to get to the, severabil- to the severability argument that, that we'll talk about. I may be wrong, but I think there's a feeling that the issues involving the Affordable Care Act should be put to rest. And since so much focus has been on severability, uh, I don't know how you reach severability if the ruling is that the, uh, uh, you know, uh, that the ruling on the mandate uh, finds it simply to continue to be constitutional. So in order to reach severability, uh, they they have to deal with a finding that would lead them to reach severability. Don't they have to go that way if they want to deal with the severability issue? I think so. We know there are three justices, Bryerson and Kagan, who would say the individual mandate is constitutional under the Commerce power. But it's unlikely that there's more than three justices for that. And for the other justices, it's hard to say it's a tax if there's nothing collected from it which would then mean they get to the severability question. I want to ask you about the Commerce Clause. That was not listed as one of the issues in the grant of certiorari, but there are now three new justices on the court who were not on the court uh, when the Roberts' opinion on the Commerce Clause was adopted by five justices. We have just Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh and now Justice Barrett. Uh, and all those justices, Justice Gorsuch has spent a lot of time talking about precedent, uh, have all at one time or another taken the position uh, that if a president is, if a precedent is contrary to the original understanding, they're all originalists, to the original understanding, then you have to go to the original understanding. So do you think there's any chance that the three uh, who were on the court for will be joined by at least two of the new three justices on the Commerce Clause issue? No, I don't think there's any chance. Let me go back to where we started. National Federation of Business for Sibelius. You had Roberts, Ginsburg, Bryerson, and Kagan on one side with regard to upholding the law. And you had Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito who would have struck the entire law down. Where do you think Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett are more likely to fall between those two groups of justices? 
they're very conservative justices. I think they're far more likely to see it like Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito did. Well, we should talk about surprises, though. I think you're, I, I would agree with you on the analysis. On the other hand, we saw Justice Gorsuch in the, uh, in the case interpreting what the word sex meant, the LGBTQ rights case, uh, really be committed to textualism. And he's been very strong on the fact that the original understanding uh, triumphs. So I don't know whether we're in for a surprise or not. Uh, no one, only one justice in the questioning mentioned the Commerce Clause. Justice Barrett, I remember, did ask a question in a very ambiguous way that involved the, 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 the Commerce Clause. But it, it may be something, it, it, it may be something to watch. Yeah. Keep in mind, though, that several things. One is the case that you mentioned with regard to Title VII was a statutory case about textualism. This is a constitutional issue and about originalism. Also, it's dangerous to generalize too much from a small sample. There is the occasional case where Justice Gorsuch has gone with the liberals, happened twice last year out of 53 decisions. But with regard to the Commerce Clause, Gorsuch's original views are much more like Justice Thomas' views than like the liberal justice views. And of course, one of the consequences of validating on the Commerce Clause is because one thing we did not mention because it's not not specifically mentioned in, in doctrinal issues in uh, California versus Texas is that in, in, in Sibelius, in the original case in 2012, there was also an issue about that parts of the statute that imposed new requirements on Medicaid in terms of what the states had to cover uh, in Medicaid. And the, the carrot and stick was the states had to cover it or else... Uh, the things, the money that they received from the federal government would be cut back, and the court found that the spending clause would have been violated, as I as I remember it, and that the Medicaid only went into effect in those states that elected it. Many have, but some have not. But a ruling on the commerce clause would necessarily validate uh, the 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 Medicaid provisions. Uh, in, in, in the Obamacare Act in ways that they were dealt with differently uh, in, in Sibelius, wouldn't it? I don't think so. What the Medicaid was about was Congress said that states, if they take federal Medicaid money and want to continue to receive it, had to include in their Medicaid programs those with 133% of the federal poverty level. So this was Congress using its spending power and putting conditions on Medicaid money. And Roberts, writing for the court, and it was seven to two on this issue, said that's impermissible coercion of the states. States are so dependent on federal Medicaid money, they don't have a realistic choice. His words in the case where this is, quote, dragooning the states. So this is, quote, like a gun to the head of the states. So it had nothing to do with the commerce power or the individual mandate. It was about whether Congress, in putting this condition on federal Medicaid money, that the state would lose all of its Medicaid funds unless it complied, was impermissibly commandeering the state. So in Sibelius, even if the court had upheld the statute on the basis of the Commerce Clause without getting to the penalty, upheld the entire statute on the basis of the Commerce Clause, it still would have made the same spending clause decision with, with uh, regard to Medicaid. Yes. Well, now let's turn then to the issue uh, of, of, of severability which is the issue that got the headlines after, after the argument. Uh, in, in scope, what are the arguments on, on both sides on the issue of severability? 
Whenever a court declares one part of a law unconstitutional, the question is, does that make the entire law unconstitutional? Or should the unconstitutional part be thought of as severable, severable from the rest of the statute? And the Supreme Court on many occasions said, the presumption is in favor of severability. The presumption is that declaring one part of a law unconstitutional doesn't render the entire law unconstitutional. You ask, what are the arguments on both sides? Well, what California, what the House of Representatives say to the Supreme Court is, it's clear that Congress wanted to repeal just one small part of the statute, the penalty. In fact, in December 2017, there was a separate bill in Congress pushed by the Trump administration to repeal the entire Affordable Care Act. That bill failed. We might remember Senator John McCain, near death, coming to vote to save the Affordable Care Act. And so what better indication do you have that Congress didn't want to repeal the whole law than it had a bill and it didn't do so? On the other hand, what the state of Texas and the Trump administration are saying is that the individual mandate was the linchpin to the entire statute. In fact, in Sebelius, Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, Alito, in their joint dissent said, once the individual mandate in their mind was unconstitutional, the whole statute is unconstitutional. It's not conceivable Congress would have adopted this law without it. And they want to say, follow that reasoning. Well, let me ask you, though, the, the, the logic of this. Suppose you have a statute with, with 10 provisions in it, and the court holds that the only reason it's constitutional is because of provision 10. That there, if, if, but for provision 10, the statute would be unconstitutional. And then provision 10 is negated. So provision 10 is found to be unconstitutional. What is the doctrinal basis for maintaining the constitutionality of the, this is the argument, what is the constitutional basis for maintaining the rest of the statute when the only provision that made it constitutional is negated? Well, in your hypothetical, then, provision 10 isn't severable from the rest of the statute. The whole statute would be declared unconstitutional. But the Affordable Care Act is quite different from that because the Affordable Care Act includes so many things unrelated to whether or not people have to purchase insurance or pay a penalty. And the question is, would Congress have adopted none of this if it didn't have the individual mandate? And in light of what Congress did in December 2017, considering but not repealing the Affordable Care Act, isn't that the best indication of legislative intent? There was a case, a lot of uh, what happened in the argument, we comment is that Chief Justice Roberts immediately announced essentially that, that he thought the, the provision was severable. And then so did Justice Kavanaugh. But Justice Kavanaugh had, in a way, signaled how he would view the issue of severability in an opinion that he wrote a few months ago in another case, uh, the American Association of Political Consultants versus Barr. Uh, do you remember that case in terms of how his opinion uh, sure. What's involved here was the federal statute limiting robocalls. And specifically, there was a provision that said robocalls are prohibited unless they're to collect government debt. And the Supreme Court said to 
allow robocalls if the subject matter of the speech is collecting government debts, but to not allow robocalls on any other subject violates the First Amendment. That's a content-based restriction on speech. And the question is, if this provision of the law is unconstitutional, does that make the entire robocall statute unconstitutional? And Justice Kavanaugh said, no, the presumption is in favor of severability and we should just declare this part unconstitutional and leave the rest of the statute. And he seemed to be echoing the same views with regard to the Affordable Care Act. There was an irony, just as a, as a side note, in the American Association of Political Consultants case, because that group, the American Association of Political Consultants, their interest was to have the whole statute declared unconstitutional so they could use the variety of robocalls in their political consulting. They got the result they wanted in terms of the provision and, and the doctrine, which is that because of the exemption for collection of government debt, it was content-based and therefore unconstitutional. But the severance left them essentially losing in terms of what their interest was. Uh, and it's one of the ironies of constitutional litigation, I guess, that these things uh, 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 occur in that way. Uh, there's another case before the court, just again as a footnote, involving robocalls as to whether certain automatic dialers are, are within that prohibition or not that involves Facebook, and that case will be argued, and it, it's, 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 it follows on the, the Barr versus AAPC case. So Kavanaugh then signaled that. So we know that the three liberals will, would certainly rule that the, uh, if it's unconstitutional, it's severable. So with, with the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh's clear signaling that they'd rule for severability, I think we can, can we, we don't like to make predictions, but I think we can confidently say in this case that the Obamacare is not going to be ruled unconstitutional as a whole. That was the headlines after Tuesday's arguments, and I'll even add another fact. At the confirmation hearings, Senator Lindsey Graham, with the seeming assent of then-Judge Amy Coney Barrett, indicated severability would save the Affordable Care Act. If she goes ahead with that, that would be six votes. So, on the one hand, I'm confident with the prediction you just articulated. On the other hand, I want to be a little bit reserved about it. That's because everything about the Affordable Care Act has been so deeply partisan from the beginning. Every Republican in Congress voted against the Affordable Care Act. Before Sebelius came to the Supreme Court, every lower federal court judge, District or Court of Appeals, appointed by a Democratic president, with one exception, voted to uphold the law, and every lower federal court judge appointed by a Republican president, with two exceptions, voted to strike it down. Let, we want to talk about that more because you're, the, the question to Barrett at the confirmation hearing was very interesting in its context. We do want to talk about that more, but before we do, let's take another break. This is the this is the hot important news in terms of the November 10th argument, and it's been covered in the Daily Journal. But the Daily Journal also covers a variety on a regular basis of current news in the legal profession, and we'll take another break to hear some more about what other stories The Daily Journal is currently covering. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of November 13th. 
With the country's mass shift to working from home, employment attorneys and workplace investigators say worker disputes are staying the same or rising. Vita Thomas, a partner at the law offices of Amy Oppenheimer, said many in the industry assumed complaints in the workplace would plummet. Instead, the opposite happened. Thomas said the firm's caseload has increased by 30% this year, compared to 2019. A big reason for the increased complaints attorney cited was technology. Miscommunication became a greater risk when interactions were happening online instead of in the office. Additionally, a tumultuous election and protests about racial injustice have added fuel to the tension, and workers at home with their families and caring for children didn't help. Labor attorney Angela Reddick-Wright said the problems she's investigating are pertinent social issues, and that the process really feels like it's making a difference. After the bid to end cash bail with Prop 25 failed in this year's election, the man who started the process says he isn't done trying. State Senator Bob Hertzberg successfully got then-Governor Jerry Brown to sign SB 10, which would have phased out cash bail in California. That was overturned with the rejection of Prop 25. Now Hertzberg said he has set his sights on the referendum process itself, citing issues with how votes are cast and where they appear on a ballot. Hertzberg said it's confusing to have citizens vote yes to keep a law, and he said the rule that requires referendums be placed at the end of the ballot leads to exhausted voters either abstaining or defaulting to no. The legislature reconvenes on December 7th. The first large multi-party civil trial post-shutdown in San Bernardino is underway despite virus concerns. The California State University trustees failed to get the proceedings paused in a student lawsuit. Superior Court Judge Lynn M. Ponson refused to delay the trial after the school objected, citing a third wave of coronavirus infections statewide. CSU took the issue to the 4th District Court of Appeal, which sided with Judge Ponson. Attorneys for CSU said the trial was a super-spreader event waiting to happen, but attorneys for the student argued there was good cause to start the trial, given her severe injuries from the incident in the lawsuit and that she requires round-the-clock care. They also said the court's efforts to abide by safety rules went above and beyond. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're now back from our break, and you've mentioned the very important, uh, the, the, the confirmation of, of Amy Coney Barrett, of course, was, was high, high theater and high importance. And in the context, uh, the, the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee basically said the issue was about Obamacare. She's being put on the court uh, to knock out Ob- Obamacare. And uh, you're right, Graham asked that question. And though she didn't say she'd find it was severable, there was a clear indication that she understood and, and, and would likely. So I, th- I think we can say that she's likely to, to deal with severability as well. But in terms of how the court functions, don't you think there's a very important political aspect here, given all the questions about the court and the appointments to the court that Mitch McConnell has run uh, so successfully from his standpoint and the issues that were raised about changing the composition uh, of the court now in a different context because of the result of the of the Senate elections. But again, if we talk about the reason that the Supreme Court makes decisions, isn't it possible that the court itself and, and Justice Barrett herself is very aware that, a, that finding on severability and upholding the Obamacare Act will take a lot of the tension out of those issues? Certainly the justs are aware of that, but they're also aware of another, even more important context. We're in the midst of the worst public health crisis, maybe ever, but certainly since 1919. 
the pandemic is raging and it's worse than it's been at any point since it began in March of 2020. The Affordable Care Act provides health insurance to 21 million people. Does the Supreme Court really want to strike down that statute in the midst of a pandemic? Yeah, no, I think those considerations are very strong. And and even aside from the pandemic, which adds such importance to it, uh, there's no question that there has been a reliance interest. I mean, it's now 10 years since the statute was enacted, eight years since the Sebelius case. Uh, huge modifications have been made in the entire healthcare structure of the United States. And so the policy argument for leaving this to Congress, uh, given reliance as well as the politics, seems to be extraordinary uh, in, in this case. So we've looked at the importance of, not just the importance of the outcome of the case, but the importance of the doctrines. We've seen that the Commerce Clause doctrine played a role. We're now talking about about standing. Uh, what do you what do you think? And it was a very broad question. What what do you think of the outcome of this case? And assuming assuming the question whether it happens or not, that the court is going to find that the provision is severable, and that Obamacare is sustained. Uh, what what does that mean for the future of the court? How do you view this court now, uh, given its it, its described new six to three conservative majority? There's no doubt that this is the most conservative court that there's been since the 1930s. It's as conservative relative to the issues of this day as any Supreme Court has been conservative. And it's important to remember, it's going to be that way for a long time. Amy Coney Barrett is 48 years old. If she remains on the court until she's 87, the age which Justice Ginsburg died, Amy Coney Barrett will be Supreme Court Justice into the year 2059. Neil Gorsuch is just 52. If he remains till he's 87, he'll be there to the year 2055. Brett Kavanaugh is 54. John Roberts is 65. Sam Alito is 70. Clarence Thomas, even though he's been on the Supreme Court for 29 years, is just 72 years old. So we're not dealing with something for the next year or two. The legacy of Trump picking three Supreme Court justices is going to be with us Howard, for the rest of our lives. Well, let me ask you, even aside from the politics of the moment, conservative liberal politics of the moment, we clearly have different measures of mortality now than in the past. I mean, when justices used to serve in the Supreme Court for 20 or 25 years, that was considered a long tenure. Uh, life expectancy ended in the, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, we've seen this remarkable increase in life expectancy where people are functioning well into their 70s, well into their 80s. Simply that fact, do you want the the issue of whether you want the past to govern the future to that extent, does simply the change in mortality, the increase in lifespan, raise issues about the constitutional life tenure for Supreme Court justices? I completely agree. In 1787, the average life expectancy was 36 years old. And obviously, we are thankful that it is so much longer than that. But in terms of Supreme Court justices with life tenure or federal judge with life tenure, it becomes troubling. I referred to Clarence Thomas. If he remains on the court until he's 90, and that's the age which Justice Stevens retired, he will be a justice for 47 years. And so this doesn't sound ideological. Elena Kagan was 50 when she was confirmed. If she stays till she's 90, 
That's 40 years on the Supreme Court. I think that's just too much power in one person's hands for too long a period of time. And also, as you say, you have a real danger that it's the past that's in control of the Supreme Court. That's really the issue we're talking about. I mean, gener- future generations come along and they see people who are, if you know, if you're in your 20s, for example, concerned about issues in public life, you see people who are great grandparents, essentially, uh, who are making critical decisions. So taking it outside the political context of conservative versus liberal, and I think in terms of this discussion, it's possible to do that. What would be the best solution to deal with the, with the changes in, in, in lifespan? I favor, and I've argued for this for years, 18-year non-renewable terms for Supreme Court justices. It would have another benefit. If ever this was implemented, it would be a vacancy every two years, and every president would get the same ability to shape the Supreme Court. Since 1960, there have been 32 years with Republican presidents and 28 years with Democratic presidents. But during that time, Republican presidents had put 15 justices on the Supreme Court. Democratic presidents had put eight justices on the court. That's just because of the accident of history of when vacancies occur. But this would require, that change would require a constitutional amendment, wouldn't it? I think so. There are scholars who believe it could be done by statute. There's a bill that's been introduced into Congress to do it by statute. And I'd like to see it done, but I think it would take a constitutional amendment because I read Article 3 as saying Supreme Court justices have their position for life. What about the suggestion statutorily of naming additional judges on the courts of appeal to something called the Supreme Court and then having a random grouping of nine making decisions? Could that be done by statute? No, I don't think so, because the Supreme Constitution says the justices of the Supreme Court have their positions for life. And these are the justices of the Supreme Court. Whether we like them being there or not, I don't think they're responsibly taken away. And I think the idea of randomly selecting Court of Appeal judges to be Supreme Court justices is a terrible idea. Um, there are some great judges on Courts of Appeals, but there are some who should never be on the United States Supreme Court. Probably shouldn't be on the Courts of Appeals either, but um, I don't think they would have been confirmed for the U.S. Supreme Court with the kind of scrutiny that would be required. I, I was waiting to hear how you were going to phrase that. So in terms of statutes, the only thing that could be done statutorily, since the Constitution does not set the number on the Supreme Court, would be to change the number of justices on the Supreme Court. That's correct. Um, just as an anecdote, on Saturday, September 12th, William and Mary Law School was holding a conference on the Supreme Court. In fact, Amy Coney Barrett was one of the participants. And I was on a session at the end, and Bob Barnes, who covers the Supreme Court for the Washington Post, was moderating. And he asked all of the panelists, did we think there was any chance that there might be an increase in the size of the Supreme Court? And I spoke up and said, if God forbid something should happen to Justice Ginsburg, well, Donald Trump is president, and if the Republicans were to push through a conservative quickly, I think there's a real chance that if the Democrats win, the White House and both houses of Congress, they will then expand the size of the Supreme Court. Six days later, Justice Ginsburg died. I think if the Democrats were to win the two runoff seats from Georgia and thus would control the Senate, there's a real chance it would be considered. But assuming the Republicans take at least one of those two seats, then there's no chance the size of the Supreme Court is going to be expanded, not in the next two years. 
But even even if it's 50-50, I mean, the odds of getting all 50, uh, uh, first of all, I think it would be subject to filibusters so that uh, even though appointments no longer are, the statute to change the number on the court would be. And Senator Manchin has already announced that he will not vote to end the filibusters. So I think even, even with 50-50. So the question is, uh, you know, it's at least two and maybe four years uh, before the, the composition of the of the legislature uh, provides an opportunity to have that discussion, and it'll be in that context uh, that any such discussion takes place. And uh, I think, don't you, that the court is very aware uh, of that and very institutionally concerned, and that may have an impact on the range and depth of the decisions it makes. I'm skeptical. I don't think that the five most conservative justices are going to hold back on the chance that it might cause an expansion in the size of the Supreme Court. It's too speculative and unlikely. We've had nine justices since 1869. And I think that the five justices now perceive the chance to advance an agenda that they conservatives have wanted to do for decades. Um, on Thursday, November 12th, Sam Alito gave a speech at the Federalist Society. And if people haven't looked at it or read about it, they should. It was a stunning speech for a sitting justice to give that expressed his views on so many issues, including ones literally on the Supreme Court docket this term, but it could not have been more conservative and it could not have been clearer in his giving the message, we've got the votes now and we're gonna use them. We have had a discussion about the doctrines involving uh, California versus Texas, the Obamacare case. Uh, we've tried to, I've tried to do this in depth that goes beyond the headlines. And I want to thank you so much, Erwin. We could not have anyone better able to talk about the history and these issues and its implications for the Supreme Court. Uh, you are a real treasure in the legal profession. You are so kind to say that. It's a pleasure. And I look forward to when the pandemic is over, hopefully we can do programs together like we used to, to discuss all of this. It's just always such an enormous pleasure to talk about these things with you. And mine to, to talk with you, Erwin. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.